Good morning, Midland Reformed Church. This rainy Sunday uh, morning, uh, we're gathered here again on Zoom as a uh, uh, alternative uh, venue for our worship, but uh, we worship together in the uh, presence of the same God, the same Spirit, the same unity um, that we experience whenever we call together on the name of the Lord. And so our text today comes from Matthew chapter 14, beginning at verse 13. I'll be reading out of the uh, NRSV version. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them, and he cured their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, uh, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. And Jesus said to them, uh, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they replied, But we don't have anything to give them. We have nothing but five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Uh, then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, and he blessed and broke the loaves. And he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and all ate and were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve baskets full. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. We'll ask God to bless this reading, his holy and inspired word. Amen. Uh, this little story uh, is the one and only miracle story that shows up in all four of the gospel accounts. All four of the gospel writers elected to include this in their story. So why is this miracle so uniquely important? At one level, uh, the echoes of the Lord's Supper, or communion as we might call it, are just absolutely unmistakable, right? He took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to them. Uh, writing for the earliest followers of Jesus, um, those who are following this commandment to practice the sacrament, these gospel writers would have wanted to make this connection. It would have been important to them to emphasize that even in the ordinary and routine things of life, like eating a meal, something miraculous is happening. That God is breaking in in a mysterious way that is beyond explanation. And so uh, we today, as followers of Jesus, who are also living into his command to break bread, to bless it, to break it, to give it, uh, we not only read about this miraculous filling, but we can participate in it. Now, today it's raining outside, and so we're not gathered together, and we're not serving communion. But uh, when we come uh, to the Lord's table, we are, in a sense, reenacting this feeding, this mysterious and miraculous multiplication of blessing uh, that Jesus provides. And I don't know what your hunger is this morning. Uh, what ache are you aware of in your soul? What's empty in you? I don't know your story today, but I do know Jesus. 
And I do know that in some way, Jesus is present in the taking, in the breaking, in the blessing, in the giving of bread, even today. And that the mystery is that every one of us still eats their fill. Our hunger is still satisfied. And so let me invite you, let me encourage you uh, not to distract yourself from that hunger but to bring that hunger with you, to bring that gnawing emptiness with you, to bring that longing with you to the table, like the crowds who follow Jesus. But there's another reason why I think that this story is um, also our story, and therefore it's of special importance for all of the gospel writers. Uh, We see in this story uh, a picture almost a paradigm of how it is that we grow as followers of Jesus, how we grow in discipleship. We see a maturing process unfolding in the life of the disciples. Uh, For us to grow as disciples, uh, we're going to find that Jesus confronts uh, our mental models. He challenges our mental models. He replaces our mental models. Now, our mental models... uh, are just simply a shorthand picture uh, that we hold really deeply of how the world works and what it means to take effective action in the world. So uh, we all have mental models and we have mental models about all kinds of different things. I have a mental model, for example, about what to do if I have a headache. Right? I get this pain in my head and, and I don't have to stop every single time that happens and say, now what is this? What, what should I do? What did I do last time? I need to engage in some research. I need to talk to some people. Maybe I get on WebMD or I call my uh, provider. I read a book about it. I blog, uh, look at some blogs. I, I don't have to do research. I don't have to do a whole lot of deliberation. When I get a headache, I have a mental model that says, lay down for a few moments in a darkened room and uh, maybe take a, an aspirin or uh, a, a Tylenol. And I do that almost without any thought at all. It's just automatic. It makes navigating in the world so much easier. I have a mental model for what happens if my car breaks down. Uh, My mental model isn't uh, put up the hood and spend a whole lot of time looking under the hood and trying to understand and diagnose and remedy the problem. Uh, I I know that I don't have the capacity or the skill set to do any of those things. And so my mental model is car broken, call mechanic. Some of you have a different mental model when your car breaks down. Your mental model is dig in, pull it apart, understand what's happening, fix it. We all have mental models for marriage, a deeply held sets of beliefs about how marriage is supposed to work. We have mental models for learning, and some of those mental models are being confronted and challenged as we contemplate the return to a school year in the midst of COVID. We have mental models for what it means to be a disciple, what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a good Christian, maybe. It's not wrong to have mental models. All of the disciples that we see in the Bible had their own mental models. They had mental models of what Messiah was going to be. They had mental models of what Jesus would do. They had mental models of what the afterlife would be like. Jesus is going to say, uh, having mental models is fine. And your old mental models were absolutely fine in the past. But this is a new day. This is a new moment, a new context. And my kingdom doesn't follow, uh, it doesn't work with those same old mental models. You're going to have to learn some new ways of functioning in the world. 
some new deeply held beliefs about how the world works and what it means to take effective action. Let me show you just two mental models that Jesus is going to challenge for us this morning. Uh, this whole story takes place in the context of Jesus grieving the loss of John the Baptist. Um, when he heard this, he went away by himself. When he heard what? When he heard the report that John the Baptist had been executed. This is a senseless loss. It's cruel. It's a personal loss. Um, John is Jesus' cousin. They grew up together. He's family. Uh, John was one who pointed the way to Jesus. John baptized Jesus. John was a personal friend to Jesus. And now he's been executed for sport. And Jesus is grieving. And Jesus goes away by himself to grieve. In solitude, he withdraws. And that's perfectly normal. Uh, it's a picture that matches perfectly well with many of our own mental models for grieving. When we are processing loss, we want to isolate. And I know that's true for me as well. But in this story, the crowds don't let him do that. The crowds follow Jesus. They discover where he is and where he's going. And by the time he's getting out of the boat, uh, the crowds are already there waiting for him and they don't give him a moment's peace. And look at what Jesus' response is again. Um, Jesus just blows me away. He moves towards them. And Matthew says he has compassion on them. In his own grief, Jesus serves their needs. Out of his own grief and out of his own loss and his own hurt, he serves them and he shows them compassion. And that's an entirely different mental model. It's an entirely different way of taking effective action in the world. It's one that points to a different source of strength, a different source of life that Jesus is tapping into. One that doesn't depend on isolating and withdrawing, but one that is all about connecting. Connecting to God's presence and connecting to opportunities to serve those around. It's a different place of healing for Jesus' grieving heart. How does that mental model of loss, of grief, of hurt, challenge your own mental model of what to do in the face of loss? So here's a second mental model that gets challenged um, for us today, and it's directly connected to how we serve others. Uh, Jesus' disciples are evidently growing here already in their capacity to think of the needs of others beyond their own needs. And that's a great development in their, uh, in their learning and in their maturing. And uh, so it's with really admirable compassion and forethought that they recognize we have a massive logistical problem on our hands. We have a whole lot of people here, 5,000 people plus women and children, and we have to feed them and they're hungry and it's getting late and we have a plan to solve it and here's the plan that they bring they've been giving some thought to this and it's a compassionate plan it's a really uh, a good sound thoughtful response to the challenge they say send these people away to these surrounding villages to so that they can buy some food it's a win-win it's good for the local business economy and it's good for everybody here who's hungry and it's good for you jesus because you really do need some time alone it's a win-win situation it's a good plan and uh, it also is a reflection of the way my own mental model of serving 
of ministry usually goes. I see a need. I see what resources do I have uh, that could meet that need, that need, and then I determine uh, how to move forward. Um, Jesus comes along though, and he says, "I want to suggest a different mental model of serving." A different mental model of mission and ministry. He says, I don't want you to look at what you have, but I want you to look at what you don't have. I want you to feed them. This is a picture of serving and compassion that takes them far beyond their own limited resources. And at the same time, is a, is a picture of serving and compassion that is going to be far more costly to them than they may be prepared to face. Why is it costly? Well, they had to give up. They knew already that they had these meager scraps of food. Maybe among uh, the handful of Jesus' closest followers, they had, they had sort of pooled their resources and they had uh, some, some fish and some bread. Uh, not really enough even for them, uh, much less for everybody. And Jesus says, well, why don't you turn over what you do have? This is giving. This is serving. This is ministry. Not out of their abundance. Not, of, not out of their, uh, their, their, their leftovers. But it's out of their poverty. And now it seems nobody is going to have enough. Except they do have enough. Uh, not only do they have enough, but they have this hilarious abundance. It's almost comical to imagine the disciples gathering up barrels of leftovers. The crowd sated and full, completely satisfied with their meal. Here's a mental model for the kingdom that Jesus announces. God is a God of hilarious abundance. God is not limited in his resources. God is not limited by what you can do naturally. That's your mental model. That's my mental model. It's not God's mental model. God will use you and us in ways that are exponentially beyond what we can presently imagine. Are you open to stepping out into that kind of serving? Here's a second mental model shift for the kingdom that Jesus announces. He says that following God requires not just token generosity, not just when I'm comfortable, but it requires profound and even risky sacrifice. It doesn't require me to give something. It requires me to give everything. I can hear the cautions, I can hear the pushback, I can hear the, the, pro, the, the provisions that we want to attach to that, the caveats that we want to attach to that. I hear them in your mind and in your heart because they're in my mind and my heart too. But we don't want to be reckless, we, we don't want to, uh, we don't want to uh, enable somebody, we don't want to, uh, to, to give uh, and then end up in need ourselves. Um, we might say, this is all well and good. As long as we're sure that Jesus is actually the one who's leading our serving and leading our ministry. The disciples had this distinct advantage that Jesus was actually present telling them what to do. I hear all of those caveats. I hear all of those concerns. And I share in that wondering. And it also brings me back to where we started. That in our breaking of the bread, 
in the common and ordinary moments of our life, we also have Jesus' presence. We also have Jesus' voice. We also hear the command of Jesus, give me what you have. And our mental models can be challenged today, just like the mental models of those disciples on the hillside that day. As we are formed more and more into the sort of people that God desires us and invites us to be, as we live faithfully in his kingdom. Amen.